Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I am your host, Sharon Mandur. And I'm your co-host, Ariel Frame. And we're here with Sophia Agustin. Thanks for being here. Thanks. <laughs> so right off the bat, I'm going to ask you, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Perfect. Yeah. So my name is Sofia Goston. I am a second year MA, so Master of Arts student in anthropology at Western University. Um, I'm specifically in sociocultural anthropology. Um, I know you've had some previous anthropologists on here, but for uh, general audience, um, an anthropology is divided among four subdisciplines in North America. So that's sociocultural, linguistics, biology, and archaeology. Um, so I'm on the sociocultural side. So looking at cultural phenomena, social relations at various levels. Um, interesting. So so broadly, we understand you're talking about sociocultural things. Um, in, in particular, uh, what's the focus of your study? Yeah. So... So in my undergrad, I specialized in anthropology, but I also majored in museum and curatorial studies. So looking at museums, how objects, material culture are exhibited in different spaces. Sharon, you would know this from our class, you know, um, and one of those things is how to exhibit really difficult histories and stories to a general audience. So a general audience that people from People have different um, levels of knowledge of that certain topic. People have different lived experiences and backgrounds all coming to one place. So for example, how to exhibit about genocide to a general pop, uh, public. Um, so a part of that, that, that transmission of knowledge, particularly like how to introduce very difficult topics is called difficult knowledge. And it's a term that was in education, but also in museum studies. Um, so I was interested in that, but I, I was thinking about children. You know, I love art, I love illustrations, I love children's books. So I was thinking of like, how how do you introduce really difficult topics to children? Um, because there's kind of this this um, fear, not fear, but um, you know, children, how, what, what you introduce them at an, at an appropriate age level. And then I was thinking, you know, how to teach about this from even younger years. So that's when I started learning about teachers and teacher education and focusing um, from the younger years, so the elementary level. Um, so with that foundation, I was looking now at my at my research, which is looking at how um, teachers in Ontario, K-8, are looking, uh, are navigating teaching and learning about difficult knowledge in their classroom or the school at large. I, I actually do want to jump in just just yeah. maybe this is like a starting point. Can you just like um, unpack uh, what you mean by difficult knowledge? Definitely. Yeah. So difficult knowledge in it's very interdisciplinary term, but in in a general sense, it's how social trauma encounters pedagogy, which is kind of also big as well. So I'll break that down. So social trauma could be historical trauma, could be um uh historical cultural trauma so this could be something that happened in the nation or it could be you know particularly in a place like Canada very multicultural people bringing in from different places different lived experiences so they could be personal it could be historical part of the society so that's social trauma and 
pedagogy is the way that the the science and the art of teaching so how the teacher and learner transmit knowledge that type of relationship um so it's how knowledge is put into action so looking at that i'm looking at how um in the curriculum for example so how are difficult knowledge topics and you know some of them broadly are the ongoing legacy of former um, Indian residential schools in Canada, Islamophobia, um, ethnic, ethnic violence, gender-based and sexual violence, all of these like emotionally charged topics, how are they presented in the curriculum? And what are the strategies that teacher use to teach and learn about them to students who are of a younger age level? Okay. I had one question I wanted to ask you because you were talking about that you wanted to go cover K to eight in all of Ontario. Is mm -hmm. it how are you are you really covering all of Ontario? Or are you going to specific regions or like certain areas to try to get a grasp of all of Ontario? Def yeah, so I wanted to focus on Ontario specifically because um, there isn't a federal branch. So like the Canada, the government system, it's federal and provincial and there's no federal branch of education. It's all pro province level. So the provinces are in charge of that. So I, I want to go province specific. Um, and, you know, Ontario is huge. <laughs> if you look at it, Canada is a very big place, particularly North Ontario. Um, there's, you know, uh, the district school boards that can manage a wide geographic area. Um, and the closest up north is like Thunder Bay um, that you get from a lot of the northern communities who, who are coming down to that northern Bay district school board. Um, so, yeah, my my main uh, method is interviews. So informal interviews with teachers. Uh, I recruit them through social media. So it's really dependent on where they're from, but it's really helpful within my, with, with, you know, doing research online is that you can get people from all over, all over Ontario. Um, right now I have a pretty good, I have about 12 participants and they range from Southern to Eastern Ontario and they go up to Barrie. Um, so I'm, still looking for more teachers that represent other regions in Ontario that have different, um, you know, lived realities, right? Like the uh, teachers everywhere have a different conception of what difficult knowledge is, depending also of the history of the area. Um, so that's also really interesting as well. And I want to be able to bring those perspectives in. I guess jumping off there, like in, um, um, that is, <laughs> quite a lofty uh, goal to, to cover Ontario because it is quite big. Yeah. Um, I mean, geographically, literally, if you had to drive around, it would be difficult. Um, you know, if you had the same population of people, you'd be in one city or like one suburb in, in Japan. But, uh, but, but here, here, even if you wanted to cover everywhere it, to physically get there would be difficult. But I mean, as you said, you're doing it online, so you don't have to cover everywhere. But then my question is, if you do want to get a sample that kind of represents Ontario and, you know, I, I understand you were saying like, Oh, I got as far as Barrie. So you're trying to say, you know, you don't want to just represent the densely populated areas. You always also want to dense uh, represent the other areas. So then my question is, um, you know, in your recruitment process, and it sounds like you're, you're still sort of doing that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, how many is enough? <laughs> how, how do you know, how many people will be okay now I've got a representative sample and I can say that my results uh, represent Ontario how do you know that 
Um, no. So that's something with my research. It's a non-representative sample. Um, okay. and it is, yeah, because representative samples, it, ha it would have to be a really large, really, really large pro uh, sample size. And it has to be also done in a way that there is uh, more control of how the sample is being collected. So this is very non-representative, depending on whoever wants to talk to me, can talk to me. That's why my goal is to reach as much of Ontario as possible, but it isn't um, a condition. It's it's whoever is willing and coming to talk to me about their experiences. So um, I'm using various approaches to understand and kind of position their, the role of teachers um, also within the, the, the curriculum, for example, analyzing the curriculum, how their roles are, um, positioned in the curriculum. Also looking at online ethnography. So online ethnography is kind of, you know, ethnography is an approach that a lot of anthropologists use kind of being in the field, you, um, maybe you've heard of participant observation. So being embedded in the environment, understanding the language, the culture, the tradition, being there longer term. Um, so ethnography is also a way to understand how online um, relationships and connections happen. So what are people talking about? Um, uh, how, how are teachers being, you know, what kind of conversations are teachers having with, among each other? What topics, what themes? Um, and I'm primarily doing that through Twitter and Facebook. So I'm, I'm analyzing conversations, groups, and through that, I can kind of get a grasp of what are the main topics or themes that they're discussing within the time frame that I'm doing my research. Uh, I wanted to ask, uh, you were saying you were getting them through social media and stuff. And I was curious because... I feel like it would be hard to recruit people. I feel like, uh, uh, so could you speak on a little bit about that? Like the, maybe the difficulties or maybe it's easy for you to do it, but like, I was, I was curious how hard it is to get like interviewees. Definitely. It, is, it definitely is an art to mm. recruiting. Um, and it's also being delicate about it because, you know, you can, you know, use those hot words on social media to kind of get more attention, mm. right? Cause you know how to you know, the algorithm kind of ways to promote your work more. But for me as an academic, as well as ensuring that there's ethic, ethical dimensions to how I'm recruiting. So for me, I um, uh, also, an important note, I know quite a, quite a bit of teachers in Ontario. Some of my friends <laughs> have become teachers. So, and some of my older friends have also, and family have also become teachers. So I'm, I'm already in the community a little bit. But for example, on my Twitter, I uh, did a thread. So I just like published my material connected with um, uh, teachers through hashtags. So hashtags are kind of uh, community centered like tags on Twitter that you can search up and they can filter through of who's talking about that. Um, and I look at main ones from Ontario that they're Ontario education, Ontario ed, and did a little bit of research of what kind of teachers are talking about what and what hashtags they use. Um, and then starting to follow them, interact with their, with their, with their feed, like their posts and making it all an authentic and genuine. And then that's something too, that it's really, really interesting with anthropology is how do you mimic in-person interactions online? Because online can be very inauthentic and very ingenuine sometimes um you know the questions of how do you who do you know who's a human on, on twitter it's not a bot like how do you engage in an authentic way so one way for me is you know 
for the month in, in the summer before I started actively recruiting, I would start following teachers who were, you know, centered around my, my research, um, interacting with their posts, um, commenting, and then through that, and then under, and positioning myself as someone that they knew and following other colleagues of theirs. Then when I brought up my tweet, a lot of them responded and said, okay, yes, I'm very interested in your work. I want to get to know more. Um, and so it could be a bias sample in a way, because these are people who are already on Twitter, who are already presenting themselves as an educator who's interested in this work. Um, but I also wanted to reach teachers who aren't. So, you know, uh, people, my, my conditions is people that are publicly have a public profile that are not private. If they're private, then I'm just like in person. If someone doesn't want to talk to me, I'm not going to force them. So if they're a public profile, then I can like DM them, for example, a direct message and say, hey, I'm doing this research. Um, and then if they were willing to talk to me, they would talk to me. And I said, I did the similar strategy on Facebook. For example, I would go on public groups of teachers, uh, post my content, my recruitment file. And then if they were interested, they would reach out to me. And a lot of my re uh, recruitment as well is called snowball sampling. And it's literally the image of a snowball as it's going down a hill, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So once you get one person, then they and you do the interview, then they think, Oh, I have another teacher that you could talk to. And I have another teacher, another, another teacher. So a lot of my uh, sample as well have has come from that strategy of people reaching out my, my research to their colleagues and friends. Thanks for that, Zofia. I, mean, I think we got a pretty pretty clear picture now of your of your methods and uh and it's you know commendable to try and to delve into that because i can imagine um it's not easy to to do recruitment that way and and uh <laughs> and then try to try to engage with people who just random people who may or may not be keen on it at, at first so um you know kudos to you um uh, I wanted to backpedal just a little bit and talk again, just more about the teaching of difficult knowledge, you know, the subject of, of, of these interviews that you're going to be having, right? Um, you know, you explained to us a little bit what difficult knowledge is. So, uh, I, I mean, I can't help but wonder then um, if there isn't already policies in place as to what curriculum what curriculums are allowed to or should or shouldn't have you know I imagine when uh when I went to school when I was a kid five years old to 13 years old around that range the the teacher didn't necessarily make up the curriculum every time or they probably had to I, I don't know I don't even know so mm -hmm. is there a, a a specified curriculum and does it like is there already um some policy in place that stipulates what you can or can't teach a kid between five and 13 yeah, there's, um, yeah, thanks for that. There is some education on like early childhood education, for example. Um, and so this is, you know, uh, cognitively, like what children are able to understand about a topic. So it's really getting it to, to the, to the, the, the bones of the topic, and you can always flesh out and make it more complex as you can. Um, but for me, I'm focusing on the social science history and geography curriculum. So this curriculum was revised in 2018, and this is for K to eight. Uh, it's centralized on seven to eight, but they can use the summer certain topics and pare it down to younger years. And also the language and arts curriculum. So these are like 800 page documents. They're massive. Um, and the way that these topics are introduced in them is 
mainly, you know, about history. So, you know, how are Indian residential schools framed in the curriculum? How are Indigenous experiences? How is racism and um, how is racism? How is sexual based violence framed? And there is there. They, these are introduced in a way in the curriculum. But what I'm interested in is how um, the curriculum doesn't solely guide how the teacher talks about it, right? Like it's kind of a foundation, they're learning objectives of students should be able to do X and Y by the end of the year. And there are, you know, skills that they must obtain, you know, learn how to read and write, learn how to understand the world and understand um, certain topics in a, in a fundamental way. But what I'm interested in is how, how, you know, particularly with the polarity of the world recently after COVID, um, so many things happening and there's so much things that aren't in the curriculum. So for example, how to frame really, you know, school shootings, for example, how do you talk about things that aren't in the curriculum that happen? And that immediate conversation that teachers are expected to have with students was really interesting to me. Um, what resources and what strategies are they, are they using? Um, and, what, and what I hear too, as well from teachers that I've had interviews about is, you know, um, making sure that is an authentic way that you are learning about it. Teachers have so much work already. And when you put, for example, workshops of anti-racism anti workshops, anti-oppressive strategies of learning on top of their already busy workload that can get that, you know, is one workshop a week and they're expected to be experts of anti-racist education how how are they authentically engaging with that and what other tools are they using so that what brought me to that's what kind of brought me to the to the core of questioning how those topics are framed and not framed in the curriculum and i guess that just quick follow-up i'm so now i get the i get the idea that there is there is a little bit of a guideline at some point i mean and then people there's also additional things that kind of become um pertinent as the, to the day and the time so so that yeah. gets sort of added uh ad hoc um but it also sounds like all the policies that are sort of are in place are um inclusionary they say okay this is what you this is the expected learning outcomes basically for every for every age but it didn't sound like there was really any exclusionary because when, i mean when it sounds like talking about specifically difficult knowledge the the question is uh, yes, how you broach it, but also when, right? You were saying what age. So it, it, by that logic, there must be um, certain difficult knowledges that that there's an age threshold below which you just don't, you don't, you, you're told specifically not to teach. Is, is there such a thing? No, I haven't entered that. I also like to preface that I'm not um, an educator, like I'm not an early childhood educator um like I'm, I'm not specialized in that field but what I do know as like an anthropologist coming into this is that there are um for and from who I've talked to there isn't really that exclusionary um set of of when or how to introduce it's more the it's more the how um for example in early years you 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 lose you use a lot of children's books um and looking at images and read out louds and read out louds are when teachers you have a have a children children's book for example that talks about um uh, gay rights and the the image are, are two are two men getting married and talking about their history with their family through a children's book and so at the preliminary, you're looking at the illustrations, how they're interacting, and then the teacher probes students. Okay, what are you seeing? What are you understanding? And then leading that to other discussions that have, and the more 
the exclusionary is more about how you go about the external conversations. You know, you can always extrapolate as far as you want and you can always, these are really complex issues, but you, you can get to the framework of them at really young ages. I've talked to teachers in grade one that are doing this. Um, um, but it's more so what you mentioned earlier, like the politics, right? What are the, what, what is the backlash? If there is backlash from the community, from parents, um, is it something that they want their students to learn about? How much do they want to, the students to inquire about the world? You know, and it's also the approach to teaching and learning is what is education? And that also gets to the framework of what is education? What is the purpose of education? So these are, you know, really complex topics as well. Uh, so I actually wanted to ask about that. I feel like uh, teachers have to deal with parents and the communities at large. And will your research also like look into that as well? Are you look like maybe reaching out to community members as well to see how they feel about the stuff being taught? So, um, no, I am <laughs> really focusing on teachers. But um, in my summary, I mentioned there's an approach called institutional ethnography. Mm. Um, and I will very simply put it, it's, uh, it's an approach in sociology. And it's a way to understand how uh, the, the group or the person that you're interested in, in, in examining is embedded in institutions. So, for example, teachers are in the educational institution in Ontario. And once you look at that, you can peel it back several levels, right? You can peel it back that teachers are governed by the principal, by the school and the district school board, and they're funded by the Ministry of Education. And then you also have the pressures from the media, the community, students. So you have all this like network of social relations that affects how teachers are approaching this work. And that gives you a lens to understand the ways that they're navigating those tensions among so many different actors. And that's a way that I'm viewing it is through the experience of teachers. And that's where they're my, they're my main group that I'm, I'm, I'm looking into and looking at how their work is coordinated through text. So the curriculum, how is the curriculum enabling and constraining, enabling or constraining their work, depending on um, other people in the community that they're also navigating. So their employer, but also the community at large has now a lot of power to determine what they can or cannot talk about. So it's, you know, I'm sure you have questions about what that is, um, but that's how I'm positioning other people in the research. Um, I'm just thinking about like when you were talking about your methods and you said you were doing your recruitment online um, and, you know, you're saying part of, part of the institution part of institutional ethnography is, you know, a community. Well, it, to what extent is it is an online community an institution is that is that a thing yeah so it's looking at within the institution of of education so the community could be physically the people that are surrounding the community that the teachers say you know within the community that i'm teaching and working in we have um for example chatham kent in southern ontario that is an area that was one of the last stops of the underground railroad so the community there are descendants descendants of of slaves but you also look at the, the the complexity of the community and the structure so teachers are navigating different um different tensions there and so they can comment on how their community and the parents and the families are affecting their work but it really depends as i said earlier geographically where they're located that's a different experience to teachers working in northern ontario um, and so just the institutional piece is looking at how there's so many different actors and layers affecting teachers work 
as the experts in their work and understanding um, how the institution has affected and coordinates their work um, in ways that is written and not written, you know, so ways that, um, and this also lends to like the bureaucratic nature of institutions, for example. Um, I mean, it sounds like it, 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 we, we would need, you know, three times the time to, to really get to more in, more in depth here and, and really have a, a, a broad understanding of what you're, what you're talking about. It seems like a complicated um, study. Uh, but uh, with the last minutes that we have, I, I am also kind of interested in, in the question, like, why? <laughs> why did you do this? Or why are you doing this? Not, not passing judgment on whether you do it or not. It's, it's obviously your passion, right? But, uh, but why? why? Why did you go into this, uh, in this degree program and choose to study what you're doing? And where is it going to take you? Yeah, thanks. Um, so yeah, it's very, it's very complex. And I think it's like, it speaks to the where I'm at in my research as well, that I'm thinking about so many different, different perspectives in my work. Um, so maybe, maybe we can do like a full up uh, uh, interview once I'm done. And I can be like, hey, this is exactly what I what I found. Um, we'll hold you to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the big why, um, I'm really interested in how to how children and how young adults learn about really difficult um, topics. You know, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm an artist. I love illustrations as well. So I, I'm, I'm looking at how to, to do resources for, for young, for young children to understanding really co complex topics. Um, because, you know, in our world today, I think anthropologically as well, people are introduced to things at a way, way younger age on social media. There's so much mediating factors that influence how much you learn and when you learn. And I think that education should should um, should personally step up to that and change and looking at the institution of it to reflect the reality of students living in. You know, when you look at statistics of suicide among young girls and the age that that's happening, earlier and earlier and you can and you can tie that to the to the progression of social media it's it's really it's really heartbreaking and it's really looking at how the reality of our world and the way that our children are being educated is completely different than it was before um so that drives me and and so that passion itself drives me to look at this anthropologically you know i love looking at interdisciplinary lens of how how humans interact the way that humans interact and the different ways that they interact um and also the different generations you know how are adults helping children and etc all of that um and with this work i would like to work in education one day uh in curriculum planning at the government or ngo level um and maybe do my own consultancy business one day centered on this making resources and maybe working in publishing, doing children's books. So I have like a different, I have many passions, I think, <laughs> of how to apply this research. Uh, so we're almost about out of time. And I wanted to, and so thank you for being on here, Sophia. It was a pleasure to have you. <laughs> but before we go, if anybody wants to learn more about your research, is there a website or a Twitter feed or a social, hand, social media that they can reach out to you on? Yeah, on Twitter, I have my professional Twitter, which is at Sophie Medovarsky, not the easiest, but I'll spell it out, at Z-S-O-F-I-M-E-D-O-V-A-R-S-K-I. Um, and on there, I have some more resources about my work. Awesome. So 
This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Sharon Mandur, and my co-host was Ariel Frame. We've been speaking with Zofia Agenston, and this episode was produced by Laura. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. To listen to us, we are on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, we also have select episodes uploaded on YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a great day.